All right, so if you got your Bibles and you want to follow along, uh, we're going to begin in Job chapter 2, verse 11, and we will carry all the way through the end of chapter 3. So Job 2, 11 uh, through uh, 3, 26, or the whole chapter 3 today. Um, the title of our lesson, as I mentioned last week, is The Battle Begins. Now, just a quick recap. Now, at this point in our story, uh, Job has... Uh, he, he's lost all of his wealth, he's lost his ten children, he's lost his health, uh, he's sitting on an ash heap full of sores from the top of his head to the soles of his feet, uh, and, and the one person in his life that uh, he's really, really close to that should give him support has basically told him uh, to curse God and die. So he has been through a lot already, yet I've entitled this The Battle begins. Now, why would, I, why would I do that? Well, if you've ever gone through a crisis, um, if you've ever gone through the death of a loved one, or you've ever gone through that uh, initial diagnosis of a, of a sickness, you'll know that it takes a while for that to really sink in, right? Uh, you know, when, at first you, you get the diagnosis or you hear the news or whatever the case may be, and you're really just in, in, in shock. And, you know, you, you, you can't really wrap your mind around it yet. You're still kind of, you know, the news is getting out and all your friends show up and you're getting calls and letters and visits and, and all of this kind of activity is going along. And that kind of distracts you a little bit. But there comes a time eventually when you have to assume normal life and you are got a lot of time to spend alone uh, with your with your thoughts. And that's why... I say the battle really begins there. Because the war against Satan, Paul tells us over and over, is not a physical war. It's not a war of the flesh. More than anything else, it's a war of the mind. It's a mental, mental battle. 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5, Paul says this, For though we walk in the flesh, we're not waging war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Well, what are those strongholds? He tells us they are arguments and opinions raised against the knowledge of God. That's what they are. The arguments and opinions that we hear, that we think, that come against the knowledge of God. And, and of course, Paul goes on to say that we are to take those thoughts uh, into uh, captive to the obedience of, of Christ. Now, sometimes Satan will bring those arguments and those opinions from outside of us. They'll come from culture. They'll come from our education system. They'll come, uh, unfortunately, sometimes from our pulpits. They'll come from books that we read. They'll come from uh, friends. They'll come from family. They'll come from all outside of us. Sometimes they come from inside. Sometimes they're just thoughts of our, of our own that we think. But it is a mental uh, battle. So here's Job. He's endured this initial onslaught, right? He's got sickness, the, the loss, all of this stuff. He's mentally and physically weakened at this point. We, we mentioned last week, last week, sickness just has a, has a way of weakening uh, you where you don't think straight. You don't, you don't feel, uh, obviously you don't feel good. You don't think straight. You're just not, you're not at your, obviously at the top of your game. He's not sleeping. We saw last week. He's in constant pain. And into this situation comes three friends. Let's pick up in, in Job 2 uh, verse 11. Now, when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that had come upon him, they came each from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite. 
they made an appointment together to come to show him sympathy and to comfort him. Now, I want you to understand something. Probably at this point that they come, Job has been suffering for several months. Not just a few days, not a few weeks, but several months. And in Job 7, 2 through 3, it says this, Like a slave who longs for the shadow, and like a hireling who looks for his wages, so I am allotted months of emptiness and nights of misery are apportioned to me. So whatever is happening with him has probably at this point been going on for months. Now you may say, well, why did it take him so long to get there? Well, keep in mind, this is 3,500 years ago. The first thing they had to do is they had to hear about it. Well, where are they going to hear about it? There's no Facebook, right? You know, they don't just pick up a newspaper and say, hey, Job's lost his house and all of his children. It doesn't work that way, right? They have to hear through word of mouth. And then once they get that, they have to coordinate their journey because they made an appointment together. They all came at the same time. So they've got to send letters or messengers or whatever. And there's no telling how far apart they are from one another. And then finally, when they finally decide, okay, it's time to go, they've, all, they've got to make the, the, uh, the journey or the travel to get there. Uh, and, and again, no cars back then. So it just, it back, things back then took time, right? We're just not used to that. We think everything is just, you know, you just hear about it and you go. It just didn't work that way back then. Everything moved much, much slower. And we'll even see that here a little bit later in the story. Now, they come to Job... And their intentions, I want you to see, are good. They, they come for sympathy. They come to show him um, some comfort. And they are to be admired for that. Okay, Because that is what friends should do. Romans twelve fifteen tells us this. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Uh, Galatians 6, 2. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 4 says this. God comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to turn around and comfort those who are in affliction with the same comfort that we ourselves are comforted. So the point is, you, a lot of times you've gone through something, and the Bible expects you to take that same experience and go to somebody else and comfort them. So we are told over and over again, weep with those who weeps, bear one another's burden. So they are doing exactly the right thing. They are going to Job to just be with him and to show him some comfort, some sympathy as they go. Now... They've got good intentions, but in the end, they're going to turn out to be anything but uh, comforters to Job. In fact, they're going to be the very ones who raise those opinions and those arguments that we just talked about. They're going to be the ones that are doing it. So all of these things that are going to be Job's going to be battling against are actually coming from his uh, from his three friends. Let's look, read verse twelve. And when they saw him from a distance, they did not recognize him. And they raised their voices and they wept and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads toward heaven. Remember, he's been suffering now for months, okay? So he's already shaved his head, so all of his hair is gone. He's eaten up with just sores. Remember he said last week, my skin turns black and falls off of me. There's, it's, they're, they're running in pus. It's just a, it's terrible. It's a nasty situation. And he's emaciated. He can't eat. He has no appetite. He's not sleeping. He probably looked just completely horrible, and, and they didn't even know who he was. They couldn't, they, they says they did not recognize him. And so they, they, they the, the tearing their clothes and sprinkling dust, as we mentioned last week, was an act of mourning um, in those days or an expression of, of grief. Verse 13, 
And they sat with him on the ground seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word to him, for they saw that his suffering was very great. Now, in that day, it seems from a couple... Do you all remember in the story of uh, uh, Genesis we went through where uh, uh, Jacob died and they were taking him back to Canaan and they stopped at that place and mourned for seven days? Do you all remember that? They just had a big, big mourning. It seemed like seven days was some kind of, of mourning period in those days. We also see that in 1 Samuel. And so his friends come, and I want you to notice they're so moved by what they see that they sit down with him for a full week and they say absolutely nothing. Now, I want you to think about that for a minute. Does anybody here think you could sit for seven days and not say a word? I mean, it's almost astounding to us that they could do that. But you've got to remember, they, again, it's incredibly difficult for us to, to think about this, but they lived in a completely different society. Things move much, much slower. I mean, there's, you know, they, there's nothing to do for the most part other than work. And so for them to go a long time without speaking, it was just something they could do. And it, but even for them, by the way, it must have been noteworthy because it was mentioned. So even for them, that would have been a, been a long time. But it is an incredible uh, thing for them to do. Now, once again, they should be admired for what they've done. Okay? Uh, the best thing that we can do for people is, a lot of times, is just to be there. Does everybody know that, by the way? I hope you do. Um, I remember years ago, I had a lot of problems going to funerals. Uh, or if somebody died, going to a visitation. I just did not like that at all. And, and part of that was because I've always been a person that I think you've got to say something. You know what I'm saying? I, I'm just that way. I think I've got to, what am I going to say? Well, what can you say? There's nothing you can say. And so for a long time, I really had a problem with that until my daughter died. And then as I stood at that, as I stood at that visitation and I stood at that funeral and people came in just waves, I, rem, I realized how much that meant to me. And, and by the way, I had no clue if they said anything or not. That didn't matter. What they said was just gone as soon as it came out of their mouth. It didn't matter what they said. What mattered is they were there. And so that changed my whole outlook now on going to visitations and going to funerals. What matters is that you're there. What matters is your, is your presence. So here we are. We, we leave chapter 2. Job has suffered all this loss. He's sitting on an ash heap, suffering terribly. He's got his friends sitting there with him, and they sit for seven days in, in absolute silence. But I want you to know, it, their brain is not silent. Your brain is never silent. You can sit there and not say a word, and your mind is going a thousand miles an hour. And I guarantee you, as they sat there, Job is running all through this in his mind. His friends, all these thoughts are running through their minds, What's going on here? What's the cause of this? What's happening? And as we move forward into chapter 3, the dam is going to burst. And they're going to have a whole lot to, uh, to say. Let's pick up in Job 3.1. After this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. Now, as I said, this chapter really begins the battle in, in Job's mind. Or you might want to look at it a different way and say it just enters a new phase. But, but it really is a different level of playing field here that they're about to get into in this, in this battle. Job is going to have so many things. How is he going to choose to think about his suffering? How is he going to choose to think about what other people think about his suffering? How is he going to choose to think about God? He's got all these 
things going through his mind and choices that he is going to have to make. Now, those are the same questions, by the way, <coughs> excuse me, that are going to make up the rest of this book, and they're going to be the same questions that anybody that suffers is going to, is going to go through. See, the, the loss itself is what I would call an entry point into this agonizing battle of the mind. And we, we get to see this battle in, in the remaining chapters. Now, as we wade into chapter 3, we need to have a poetry alert, okay? You remember what I told you in, in, um, in, in the introduction, Job is Hebrew poetry. Everybody remember that, okay? Now, as you get to chapter 3, the style completely changes and it moves into poetry. Now, that means that as poetry, you have to allow for figures of speech and even exaggeration in the words that you're hearing, because that's what poetry does. For example, Job knows full well that a man cannot go back and change the day of his birth. Does everybody get that? Job knows that. Job knows you can't go back and not be born, but that's how he feels. Everybody with me? Deep down inside of him, that's how he feels. Man, I wish I'd never been born. He knows he can't change it. We're not looking for... Uh, if you're, you can nitpick this book to death. If you try to go to each verse, you can just nitpick it to death. You got And you will completely miss it. Because it's about what is deep, deep down inside of him that's coming out. Everybody with me? That is incredibly important as we move ahead. This is a man who is pouring out the agony of his soul. And you have to remember that as we move through these verses, or yet you'll, you'll just completely miss what's going on. Look at verses 2 through 10. And as we go through some of the... I, I mentioned this last week. As we begin to move, we're going to go much faster. I'm not going to, go to every, I'm not going to read every verse in every chapter. A lot of the ideas are repeated. We're going to just kind of jump around and as we move forward. We'll, we'll read most of verse 3, but not all of it. 2 through 10. And Job spoke and said... May the day perish on which I was born, and the night in which it was said a male child is conceived. May that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor the light shine upon it. May darkness and the shadow of death claim it. May a cloud settle on it. Oh, may that night be barren. May no joyful shout come into it, because it did not shut up the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide sorrow from my eyes. So the first thing Job does is he curses the day of his birth. Then he goes even back further and curses the night of his conception. So he starts out the day of his birth, then he goes back nine months and says, curse the night I was conceived. So Job is basically saying, it would have been better for me if I had never been born than to be born and have to endure this catastrophe of suffering uh, that I'm going through right now. Then, after he says that, he goes in, a, in another direction. He's like, well, if I had to be born... It would have been better for me if I had been stillborn. At least if I had been stillborn, I wouldn't have to go through what I'm going through. Look at verse 11 through 19. He said this, Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? For now I would have lain still and been quiet, and I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who built ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver? Why was I not hidden like a stillborn child, like infants who never saw light? 
There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are, are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Now, I want to just show you something here. There are things here that we could doctrinally or theologically nitpick, right? For example, Job says, In death the wicked cease from troubling. Well, let me tell you, that's, the wicked don't cease from troubling in death. We know that, right? In fact, we know that on the other side, their trouble only increases for the wicked. But again, Job is not, this, this isn't about, uh, he's not about doctrinal certainty here. This is, that's not the point here. The, the, what he's concerned with here is worldly trouble. Everybody with me? That's all he's focused on is worldly trouble. And his point is, is that in death, everybody sees us from worldly trouble. That's his only concern at this at this point. Now, finally, his lamenting takes one more turn. He said, if I couldn't have been born, and if I couldn't have died at birth, then why can't I just die right now? In other words, what's the point of me going on living? Look at verses 20 and 22. Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death but it doesn't come, and digs for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly, and are glad when they find the grave. So Job is, is one of those, he, right now he just wants to die. And again, this is, this is an, please don't miss this, this is what he feels right now deep down inside. He is depressed, he has lost everything, um, and, and, and what you're hearing here is just honesty. It's just absolute honesty. Now, even though he feels this, we got to recognize the fact that Job never does commit suicide. He does, doesn't seem to really ever consider it. Uh, he definitely doesn't do anything to speed up his death in, in any way. So even though death is preferable to him at, as, as opposed to living, and notwithstanding all that he's going through, he still seems willing to wait for his appointed time. I want to die, but I'm not going to do anything to speed it up. In other words, God's got a place for me and a time appointed for me. When that time comes, then I'll go. So I think that's important. Even though he feels that way, he never does anything to uh, make that happen. Verse 23. I want to read this verse. He said this, Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Do you remember when Satan comes to, to God, the first thing he said is, You've put a what? You put a hedge around him. You've protected him, a hedge of blessing. Well, Job here is not talking about a hedge of blessing anymore. He's saying God has hedged me in with a hedge of affliction. See, he's like, there, I can't get out of this. God has literally hedged me in, and, and there's nowhere to go. I, I can't do anything to alleviate this. I can't get away from it. I don't know what to do. So instead of a wall of protection to keep Satan out, now Job is saying that there's a wall of affliction that keeps me in. Now, here's the thing about Job. You're never going to hear him whine about his losses. Never. He'll never whine, I lost all my wealth, I lost, I lost this. Never hear him whine about that. You see, Job's torment seems to be not because he's lost faith in God, but he thinks God has lost faith in him. This is what's, dry, this is what's tormenting him. He feels like somehow... I've, God has done, God's lost faith in me. You see, when we go through all these chapters, his concern from the beginning 
to the end is his relationship with God. That's all he's ever, ever concerned about. He'll complain bitterly, and I mean bitterly. He won't whine about stuff, but he will complain bitterly about his loss of peace, his loss of relationship, his loss of approval, because he feels like those things are, are gone. And, of course, God will show up at the end and set him, set him straight. Now, Job is going to close chapter 3 with one more statement. And I don't know anywhere else in the Bible uh, that you can just find a more poignant statement of emotional and, and mental agony than you hear this one. Verses 24 to 26. Job says this, For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease. I'm not quiet. I don't have any rest. I've got nothing but trouble. So this is where we end chapter 3. That this, He is just in a bad, bad place mentally. He's in a bad place spiritually. He's in a terrible place uh, physically. Now, there's a few things I want to point out here uh, before we move next week into chapter 4. The first one is Job's emotions. Now, listen to me very carefully. I think it is very easy to read all that chapter. Man, I wish I'd never been born. I wish I'd have been stillborn. I wish I could die. And you think Job is sinning just because he's being emotional. We're not, to be really honest with you, we're not used to that. We're not used to people being that honest. Have you ever seen anybody give up a testimony and they stood up and they're going through something and they say, I wish I'd have never been born. I, I wish I'd have been stillborn. I, I wish I could die. We'd be in, we'd be in shock, wouldn't we? And, and almost every one of us would say, my God, they're, they're sinning. That's, that's sin. Let me tell you, that would be very, very wrong. Job is not sinning here. God is not going to come back and say, Job, you need to offer some, uh, some, uh, some sacrifices because you sinned. Job is just pouring out what he honestly feels inside. And God is okay with that. We're going to see that. God doesn't have a problem with, with that. Listen, the Bible never teaches us. I, I think sometimes we go through this life and, and we think we've got to go through with, with this stiff upper lip that we've kind of got to have this stoic attitude that no matter what happens to me, you know. But the Bible never, never teaches that. It never teaches that kind of approach to the problems of life. In fact, I don't think you'll ever find that, that um, some kind of emotionless Christian life is never presented to us as, as some kind of ideal. So I cannot emphasize strongly enough that Job is going to say some things that, let me tell you, they're going to make you uncomfortable. Sometimes I, when I hear him talk, I try to think, well, what if he got on that stage and said that? Would it make me uncomfortable? Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, oh, I, I got I to go to the bathroom. I can't hear this anymore, right? I, I got to get out of here. Um, but that does not mean he's cracked. That does not mean he's apostatized. That does not mean he's fallen away from the faith. He's just literally, there is a battle going on inside, and he is feeling certain things, and he's putting those things um, out there. Let me tell you, the Lord is not testing Job to see if he can sit there like a piece of wood. That, that's not the test. The, the test is not, I'm going to bring all this on you, and you've got to sit there and take it like a, like a piece of wood. I don't want to see any emotions. I, no, that's not... See, we may not be comfortable with it, but I can tell you this, an outpouring 
uh, of emotions like that is much healthier, healthier than keeping it all in. You keep all that in, one day it's just going to fester and fester and fester and fester and, and it, one day it might destroy you. It's much better to talk about it, to get it out there. Okay, Now, that's Job's emotions. I want to talk also about his misery. Job has endured, I mean, things that we can't even dream of, right? I mean, this, this, we've said it before. This is the man with the most faith in the world, and yet he's enduring the most extreme afflictions, the most extreme loss. But in this, he had, he's held fast to his faith, and he's held fast to his integrity. Now, here's, here's what is, is difficult sometimes for us to understand. At the second test, right, his wife says, curse God and die. He said, are you crazy? You talk like a foolish woman. Shouldn't, if we receive good things, shouldn't we receive bad? And it says he holds fast to his faith, holds fast to his integrity. But let me tell you, he was not rewarded for that. He is not rewarded by some quick... See, God, do you understand at the end of chapter 2, God could have stepped in and said, okay, that's it. And we could have skipped from chapter 2 all the way to chapter 40, right? Just, just jumped all, skipped all that stuff in the middle. But that doesn't, uh, that doesn't happen. And the question is why? Hasn't, hasn't Job done enough? Hasn't, hasn't he shown the world and hasn't he shown God and Satan that God is his treasure above things, even above his family, even above his health? God's honor has been upheld. There's no doubt about that. So why doesn't Job restore, or why doesn't God restore Job's fortunes? Why not just skip to the happy ending? Why do we need all these chapters in the middle? I think the answer is that Job has still got a lot to learn about suffering, and I think you and I have got a lot to learn about suffering. See, if I, for one, there's a lot of action at the beginning of this, and there's a lot of action at the end of this, and there's a lot of talking in the middle. But I am so thankful for these middle chapters. I really am. In fact, if you took out those middle chapters, this, this story would be more like a fairy tale and not reality. It would just be kind of like a fairy tale, and everybody would be like, oh, that's a cool story. But it's the middle that the battle is fought. See, we need to hear the battle. We need to see ourselves in the battle because that's real life. It don't always just, oh, God's just going to come in. And No, a lot of times he lets these things draw out and drag on because he's wanting to make something in us and teach us some things. And he's doing the same thing for Job here. Now, let's turn to Job's friends. For the next 29 chapters, starting next week, and again, I am not, I just want to set everybody's minds at ease, I'm not going to go verse by verse. We're not going to drag this out for, for, for months. Um, but for the next 29 chapters, chapter 4 through 31, <coughs> Job is going to be responding to his friends. Now, in these chapters, there are three cycles of what are called speeches. I'm going to call them rounds because they're almost like boxing rounds when I look at them. You know, you go out and you fight for a little while and everybody goes back to their corners. And then you come back again and you go at it again. There's almost three rounds, if you will, uh, of these. Round one will start next week in chapters four and five. And Eliphaz will speak. He's the first friend. And then Job will respond in 6 and 7. And then Bildad speaks up in, in, um, in chapter 8. <clears throat> and then Job responds to him in chapters 9 and 10. And then Zophar gets in on the act in chapter 11. 
And then Job responds to him in, um, in chapters 12 through 14. Now, I, I, put, I got no ideas what these guys looked like, so I put these avatars up here. And I did it for a point because these guys have their own personalities. And I want us to see that as we go through. They're, each, they're their own individual people. They've got their own views. And, and I want us to see that as we move through. This isn't just a bunch of guys throwing darts. These are real people. And, and they're, 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 they're saying what's on their mind. And they've all got personalities. And they all approach things differently. And I think we'll see that as we move through. So that's round one, which takes us up to, to 14. Then you come back to round two. Eliphaz chimes back in in 15. Job responds in 16 and 17. Bildad in 18. Job in 19. Zophar says something in 20. Job responds in 21. Then they all go back to their, their corners, uh, so to speak. And then round three, Eliphaz comes back in 22, Job responds in 23 and 24, Bildad in 25, Job responds, and Zophar, he just gives up. He just decides, okay, I got nothing else to say. So at least he, he stayed quiet and he didn't say anything after that. Now, the very thing that prompts Job's friends to say the things they're going to say is Job's outburst here in chapter 3. They sit there for seven days, they don't say anything, and, and, and all of a sudden Job says, I wish I was never born. I wish I'd have been stillborn. I wish I could die. And, and, and they can't hold it in anymore, any longer. They've been thinking about this whole thing for seven days, and the first thing out of his mouth is he wish he curses the day of his death, and they, they're like, I, I just can't hold it in any longer, right? So they've got, to, they've got to say something. Now listen to me. Their view, they've been sitting there for seven days, and what is on their mind is Job is suffering because he sinned. They're sitting there for seven days, and to their credit, they don't say anything because he's suffering so bad. But they're sitting there thinking, boy, he wouldn't be going through this if he hadn't sinned. I wonder what he's done. Boy, this must, I, you know, I hadn't, Job is just, he's a top-of-the-line guy. This is a secret sin. Man, that, how bad must this sin be? All this is just going through their mind. And, and, and in their mind, no doubt, they thought that if I could, if we can get him to confess this sin, we would be helping him, right? That if we can just get him to admit this and seek forgiveness from God, then God will turn everything around and, and make everything okay. Now, let me say this. When people are truly guilty of sin, it is right, not wrong, but right, for God's people to rebuke them and to warn them. Okay, that there is nothing wrong with that. There are numerous scriptures that speak to this. I'll give you a few. James 5, 19 through 20. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Ephesians 5.11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. 1 Timothy 5.20, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so the rest may stand in, in fear. In other words, friends don't let friends stay in sin. Okay? We used to say friends don't let friends drive drunk. Well, Christian friends don't let Christian friends persist in sin. Listen, a true friend, if you are really a true friend to somebody, you should be a source of accountability. You should be able to go to someone and say, look, we need to talk about this, what you're doing. A true friend would, would do that. A true friend is willing 
uh, to say what is needed to those who are weak or stumbling or in error. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's what Christians should do. But you need to be very, very, very careful. Because false accusation is a terrible thing. False accusation is a huge burden on someone. It's a huge discouragement to someone who's not guilty. And, and when, when false accusation comes from friends, it's even worse. It's even, it's even way better when it comes from friends. The people you should be able to rely on, should be able to trust, they're accusing you of something you haven't done. Despite Job's friends' good intentions, they end up committing a grievous sin. And at the end of this book, God will call them, uh, He will castigate them severely for what they've done. So instead of helping Job, they actually become one more burden for him to bear, one more battle for him to, to fight. Now, up to this point, and we're going to see this, Job goes through all of this. He said, the Bible said at least twice he hadn't said anything wrong. He hadn't said anything wrong. But you know, at the end, he's going to say some things he's sorry for. At the end, he's going to say some things he has to repent for. And you know, it's his friends that end up initiating all that. It was his friends and their false accusations that, that end up making him say those things that he's sorry for. It wasn't the suffering. It wasn't the loss of the wealth or the loss of the family or the loss of his health or even his wife's, uh, his, his wife's uh, abandonment of him. It was his friends that ended up pushing him to the point where he said things that he was sorry for. So you and I need to be very careful. It's one thing to know for sure that somebody is sinning and to go and call them on that. It is a completely other thing to make assumptions. Don't assume. Okay, You better know that they're really doing something if you're going to go. Two things, and I'll close with this. The first is a theological principle. The other is a theological truth. Okay? The first thing is a theological principle. Eliphaz, next week, is going to be the first person to stand up. He's got the, I guess he's probably the most aggressive, or the, he's got the most, he's the most courage of ones that he'll just say anything. So he's going to stand up, and he's going to spell out a theological principle. And he's going to say it right in the first few verses of chapter 4. And this principle sets the stage for all the other friends to kind of uh, kind of go off of, so to speak. And here's his principle, Job 4, 7 through 9, and we'll see this next week. He said, Eliphaz says, Job, let me, let me tell you something. I want you to remember something. Who that was innocent ever perished? Or when were the upright ever cut off? As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. By the breath of God they perish, and by the blast of his anger they are consumed. So Job, Eliphaz stands up and said, Job, listen, let me, I, I hate to be the one to have to say this, but let's just be honest. i got to be honest here. Have you ever seen the innocent go through what you're going through? Have you ever seen a righteous man go through what you're going through? Haven't we all seen that it's those who plow iniquity and sow trouble, they're reaping? In other words... You're going through something because you did something. Everybody see that? That's, the, that's a principle, a theological principle. Now listen, that's what they're saying. Trouble and suffering come to those who, those who sin, but the righteous prosper. Now let me tell you something. Is that bad theology? Not necessarily. It's 
not necessarily bad theology. In fact, listen to Galatians 6, 7 through 8. This is the Apostle Paul. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, and the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. They're pretty much saying kind of the same thing, right? You, you, you reap what you sow. We, we've talked about this over and over in this class. Now, we understand, I hope, that one day that scripture of Paul will be 100% true. Okay? There's, those who sow to the flesh will one day reap everlasting punishment. Those who sow to the Spirit will one day reap eternal life. That is a one day will be 100% true. But let me tell you, in this life, here on earth, it doesn't always work that way. You see, that principle for this world, it's too simplistic. It's too rigid. It doesn't answer the hard questions. Why do some people suffer in an extraordinary way, even they, though they have not sinned in an extraordinary way? Yes? You see, by that principle, if you, if you suffer extraordinarily, it should be because you've sowed trouble un, un, extraordinarily. Everybody with me? Other, why do some prosper in an extraordinary way, even though they are extraordinary sinners? Listen, I can go out right now and give you time, example after example of men who are prospering, filthy rich, and yet they are terrible sinners, terrible sinners. Well, how does that apply to them? Are you with me? You see, that one day that'll be 100% true, but in this life, it's not always that way. But you see, these friends, they just won't give up. To them, that's not a principle. It is a truth. And they will not let it go. They are absolutely dead set in their theology. If you're suffering, Job, you have done something wrong. And so they, they, don't, they don't just say he's done something wrong. They, they actually look at it as a ratio. If you're suffering like this, you've done something bad. Not that you've just sinned. You've done something real bad. And, and they believe that with everything that's in them. And they will not let it go. Now, here's a lesson for you and I. If you go, as we go through these chapters and we, and we begin to read, I could actually go into a chapter and I could pull out one of Job's friend's statements. And I could put it on the board. And if you just looked at it in itself, you'd say, man, that's good theology right there. That's good theology right there. And, and, it, and it really is. The problem is their application is shallow and it's insensitive. Proverbs 26, 7 and 9 says this, Like a lame man's legs, which hang useless, is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. Let me say that again. Like a lame man's legs, who hangs useless, is a proverb in the mouth of a fool. In other words, you can take good theology and you can put it in the mouth of somebody that doesn't know what they're talking about and they'll do damage with it. Are you with me? That, that's what he's saying. Like a thorn that goes up into the hand of a drunkard is a proverb in the mouth of, of fools. A proverb is good theology. You can take good theology, you put it in the mouth of somebody that doesn't know how to use it, doesn't know how to apply it properly, and they'll do untold damage in the lives of those around them. Listen, you know me. I'm a big believer that we should put a high premium on good theology. Theology is the study of God. 
From the day we're born again to the day they put us in the grave, we should not stop trying to learn more about God and who He really is. That's why you guys are in this class. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to find out all we can about God and who He really is. I believe in that with all my heart, but we need to be careful because even good theology can sometimes be applied wrongly. Let me say it again. Even good theology can sometimes be applied wrongly. So, listen, let's come in here and let's drink deep at the fountain of God's truth, but let's let love stand as a watchman over our mouth. Isn't that what Paul says? Speak the truth, what? In love. Speak the truth in love. So you take love out of that, and it's all about speaking the truth. You'll just, you'll just burn things down. Just burn things down. You've got to add love to that. There's got to be caring and compassion and tact and knowing what to say, how to say it, when to say it. And Job's friends didn't have any of that. The last thing I'll point out here is a theological truth. Now listen to me. This is what is amazing to me. When you, when you go out today and you just, and I love to read, I listen to podcasts, I read blogs, I, I, I just, I'm always interested in what people are saying. And if you go out there and you study suffering and you look at why, why are people suffering, the most common means used by people to explain suffering in the world today is that God is limited. That, that's the most common way people explain suffering. Well, if God could do something, He would. And so they limit His sovereignty. Yet this, this idea never once occurs to Job and his friends. Not one time. You're going to read from chapter 4 all the way up to chapter 31. And, and there's one thing. They'll agree on a lot of things. Okay? You see, today we limit God, not necessarily us, but in the world we limit God at the drop of a hat. We say, well, he couldn't have willed that sickness or he couldn't have willed that explosion or he couldn't have willed... And, and what we say is he, he would if he could, but he just can't. He's limited. He's not sovereign. There's things that happen outside of his control. That's how we go about it. Job and his friends, that idea never even occurs to them. They're going to argue a lot. They'll argue a lot over why is this suffering happen. And they'll disagree, but I'll tell you one thing they agree on. That, that, never, that, that is a central point. God is in control. God is allowing it. Now, they don't know why. They don't know the reasons. They don't know. They argue about all that, but they, it never even crosses their mind to consider that the sovereign God of the universe doesn't have his hand on Job's life in one way or another. That is a truth. That's not a principle. That is a truth that they all agree on as we move through the book. Next week, we'll turn to chapter 4. As I said, we very well, I don't know, I hadn't done the lesson yet, we very well may cover... Uh, 30 chapters next week. We may cover 15. I don't know till I, till I get in it. But we're going to go through a lot of their conversations just kind of giving you the gist of, of what they're saying. Let's pray. Father